They shoot the shit. They shoot, they shoot the shit. Shoot, 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 shit, shit, shit. Shooting the shit with Chippa. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Shooting the Shit with Chippa, one of several shows where I talk to people on the internet. Um, the only difference between this and the Chipman Brothers tangent is that I supplement my brother, Bob Movie Bob Chipman, for other people. Um, and I have a very special guest tonight. Um, and before I tell you who that is, I'll do a little bit of housekeeping here, as always. I'd like to thank my $15 or more a month patrons, Mason, Christopher Finnick, Patricia Chipman, Hugh K. Campbell Jr., Alex Peregrine, and Kevin CV. And I'd like to thank a ba- brand new patron as of earlier today, H. Freezy. So thank you guys very much. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by somebody. And today it is brought to you by the Geeks with Shields podcast. Um, the Geeks with Shields, each week hosts Axel and Ulrich provide a nerdy escape from the darkest timeline, talking everything from comics to long forgotten movies and TV shows. If the darkest timeline has you down, check out the Geeks with Shields podcast for all your nerdy needs. And with that, I'll let uh, my guest introduce himself. Good sir, tell the internet who you are. Hi, uh, my name is Eric Vespi, and I am a, uh, I don't know, movie nerd, professional movie nerd. Is that, that the right way to fr- phrase that? Yes, yes, <laughs> I, I think so. We all aspire yeah. ourselves professional movie nerds, but you are one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've been uh, writing about movies on the internet since uh, before people knew that you could do that. I'm, I'm uh, a very old man when it comes to the internet. Age. I've been doing this since 97. So. Wow. Well, the year of Titanic, as it were. Yeah. Yep, yep. No, there's a. Uh, it was uh, it was a crazy year. That that time, people kind of forget, especially like kids. You know, even not like even super old kids or young kids now, like just uh, uh, don't remember that that time when the internet was something brand new. You know, there's uh, there was an excitement to that that era that not a lot of people. Uh, just even remember anymore because the internet's so commonplace. You're walking around with a supercomputer in your pocket every day, you know. And and uh, but I vividly remember my parents getting their first like desktop, and you know, before that, my grandparents were always the ones that oddly were on the cutting edge of technology. So like I remember using signing into their AOL in the, the like early '90s and or mid early to mid '90s, and you know how amazing it was to you know use this giant hulking machine to talk to other people around the world. Yeah, right. I remember my parents upgraded from an Amiga 500 to an AT&T globalist with one gigabyte of storage space. Oh my <laughs> yeah. God. And a, and a 14, four dial up modem. And it was the coolest thing in the world. And me and my brother shared an AOL account. We were Ultraman 20. What was our, <laughs> was our screen. Name. And that was probably like 94. I'd say. Yeah, that's that would be a good question to ask people. Like, you know, what was your first uh, internet identity? Uh, my my first uh, AOL email address was Dark Tower because I was nice. a huge Stephen King nerd. So still am a huge Stephen King nerd. But uh, uh, but yeah, no, a dark. It was like, but Dark Tower at AOL was taken. So I was like, I took the A out. So it was D R K Tower, and I think people thought I was Doctor K Tower. <laughs> that, I'm surprised it. it wasn't like X underscore X Dark Tower X underscore X. You know oh, all that, those things. <laughs> that was way too uh, advanced for for me at that age. I was just like, I'll just drop letters. I couldn't didn't even think about adding numbers or letters or anything. 
So how old are you, by the way? I'm uh, 38. So I'm oh, not... cool. So you're right yeah. there with me. I'm 35. Nice. Nice. Yeah. No. No, uh, no kids yet, though. So I just have my uh, my nephews who uh, uh, who have uh, they are 12 and 10 now, and uh, and I've been. Uh, they certainly got me got me. Uh, 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 I, I, they they've awakened a parental instinct in me that I never knew that I had. I knew I always liked kids, but like especially being a movie nerd, there's nothing better than than sharing the stuff that you love with. Uh, with kids and having that, you know, get to re-experience it through their eyes. It like totally like made me like, okay, yeah, no, nah, I think, uh, the family man life might be, uh, in my future. Sure. Oh, it's, it's, it's awesome. It makes, it makes all that stuff. It, it, it gives you a reason to revisit it. Um, toys, movies, um, you know, all of it. And you know, it, you start looking at things with a different eye. Like the first time I watched finding Nemo as a parent, it was mm-hmm. a completely different goddamn movie. Right. Oh, it's I like bet. all of a sudden I'm like having a panic attack. Like, <laughs> no, he's missing. Like, we got to find him right now, man. Whereas, you know, when you're, you know, a teenager and you see that or a young kid, you, you know, you're associating with Nemo. You don't even recognize the parents have a story. Yeah. You know, <laughs> no, <laughs> the, the, the one that happened to me and this is, uh, you know, I wrote for a long time for a site called in equal news and, and, uh, it was pretty great there. You know, when I was active there because I was, had such autonomy i if i had an idea for something i just did it there was no chain of command or whatever and uh the, that overlapped a little bit with me becoming the cool movie uncle with my nephews and uh and what there was one that that really struck me one viewing of something uh and that was steven spielberg's ai oh. and that was a movie that I remember being a defender of it when it came out, but I kind of saw the point that people had that, you know, maybe it should have ended on the ocean floor. That's the, the Kubrickian cold ending and, and, and all that. Um, but what I didn't anticipate, I did a rewatch of it. Um, and the reason why I brought it up painting cool is cause I, it hit me so much as I ended up, uh, uh, that I ended up writing a big, like kind of breakdown, uh, of how, uh, you know, having kids that you love in your life completely changes your perspective on on that particular story. And because I, I just kind of threw it on in the background while I was packing for a trip, I was going overseas, and uh, it was on HBO Now or HBO Go, I think at the time. And uh, you know, whichever one was the on-demand HBO service. And I'm like, oh, I haven't watched AI in a while. I'll throw that on. And I ended up like not packing and like I stopped folding my clothes, and, like all that stuff. And I just watched it, and I was sobbing throughout the movie and i had no idea why it was it was hitting me you know so hard until i started to examine it and that's why i wanted to write about the experience because that was essentially a way for me to figure out you know why this movie that i'd already liked was hitting me on such a deeper emotional level and it was uh because i could you know it, it was because i could you know place you know my nephews max and rocco i could place them and David Chu's in a way that, you know, was more intellectual the first time. I could intellectually understand, you know, a child being, you know, unloved and forced away from his parents, you know, and or his, you know, uh, parental figures, you know. Um, you know, I could, I could understand that emotionally, you know, uh, but on a theoretical level, you know, versus, you know, having your own personal life experience, which is, you know, kind of at the core of everything, why I love movies, Um uh, and you know, I don't know. It was, it was interesting. That that was kind of like a therapy <laughs> session writing that, you know, because it was 
you know, most of my writing is all about, it, it's not crazy deep stuff. It's more like this is my emotional, your instant in the moment reaction to things. And, you know, I don't know, it was interesting kind of peeling back the layers and, and uh, you know, looking at this art form that I love, you know, in, in a way uh, and examining it, what, you know, and how impactful it can be. Yeah. It's awesome that you just jumped right into the AI thing because that was one of the things I had in my mind that I was going to talk to you about. Um, it's 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 you're finishing my sentences before me before I ask them. That um you know that particular one I remember saving that like offline and like showing that to people to like help defend that movie because I've been a defender of that since day one. Again, just like you said, you know, um, fully admitting to the movie's flaws. But I, I I love that so much about the movie that the movie is so like rough and rocky and it, it it helps the themes I think come through a little bit better that not everything sticks and not everything it tries fully works um, and I like that better than a well polished you know boring <laughs> movie you know um, it, Spielberg it's, in particular he swings for the fences uh, and that's why he has so many home runs but you know e- even. I'll take a fascinating misfire, and I don't think AI is a misfire. Like I think that it's a misunderstood movie. But you know, when I talk about a Spielberg misfire, that's a little bit more like uh, 1941, which is a movie yep. that I still love. But it's it's fascinating to me in the train wreck aspect of him not really achieving what he's setting out for, but he's swinging so hard for the fences on it, and he's you know invested so 100 percent in it that I can't help but like the movie. Um, uh, but AI, I think, gets a little bit, you know, short shrift in, uh, you know, and there's a, in in a lot of people's uh, readings of it. In in that story that you know that I was talking about and that you mentioned, one of the big things that I focused on in that piece was about the ending and how people interpret it as a happy ending, and it's the farthest thing from a happy ending. You know, like just because you see. Uh, this you know, little boy robot get what he wants. He gets his time with his mother who loves him. It's it's not it's not lasting. It's it's him dying. The the happy ending that everybody's saying, you know, is so happy at the end of this movie is the death of this you know little boy that you know that they've been following for the 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 whole thing. Yeah, and uh, you know you have those crazy future alien looking futuristic robots that rescue him from the sea floor and they. They essentially tell him that they can give him what he wants, but one, it's going to kill him, and two, it's going to uh, erase every bit of soul that his mother has in this universe. You know, if he, they are going to pull that to give him this day, this limited time that he has with her. But once they do that, she's every bit of her is gone. So he's not only killing himself in this this moment; he's also to, uh, to have this little bit of happiness and closure in his life. He's also completely eradicating anything that might remain of the person he loves, you know, in this world. To do it, it, it is such a brutal ending that because it's shot, you know, so happy and with you know Janos Kaminsky's, you know. Uh, soft you know focus and in you know it's this warm thing after this you know perilous cold movie like, like i think people really misinterpret it as, as being a happy ending you know but you know but it's not not only for them but you know you then you have teddy kind of resigning himself to sit at you know the end of the bed and shut down himself too you know it's it's a it's a really dark depressing movie um uh you know, I don't know. At some some point, somebody's gonna like really reevaluate that. You know, on a level that 
you know, that uh, is better than anything I could I could do. And hopefully people will pay attention to it. No, absolutely. And it's another thing, you know, to gauge people's understanding of it is when you hit the very alien looking robots. People don't get that that's supposed to be robots. It, 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 you know, that's a whole other movie in and of itself of like artificial intelligence has now taken over the planet and they're kind of going around archaeologically digging for any remnants of humanity they can find. And by finding this kid, they find a link to their creators. It's, it's such a cool thing. And I like ask people, they go, oh, they just look like the stupid aliens from Close Encounters. And I go, did you pay any attention? Yeah, gotta listen. It's uh, and that's brutal too because you have the they're searching for their god, they're searching for God, and they find you know essentially David is the Ark of the Covenant, you know, to yeah. them. This is their connection to God, and you know, it, it it's also amazing and emotional to me that they recognize his needs and wants and choose to give him what he needs, uh, over you know, whatever scientific. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, the theological, you know, uh, uh, thing that he represents for them. You know, it's like they they essentially let him die versus, you know, making him, uh, uh, you know, a- answer all their questions and, and uh, you know, cutting, cutting him open and, you know, all that stuff instead of making him a science project. You know, uh, it, it's interesting. There's lots of little connections to other Spielberg stuff because you can see a little bit of uh, Peter Coyote uh, yeah. from you know in that too where you know this big scary thing you know this guy that has been chasing the alien that you think is the bad guy is actually pretty he's what elliot would be grown up you know all he wants is to see you know uh you know a proof of an extraterrestrial life and you know he's wants to be kind to it and he's willing to let it go i mean that's you know you know i don't know there's a lot of spielberg in there there's a lot of kubrick in there ai's to me is one of the most fascinating movies in spielberg's um the whole filmography and it makes it it so much better you know when you know how good of friends they were and and you see that movie then you go watch Ready Player One and you get that wonderful shining sequence where it's just like I sat there watching it and going he's getting to play with his friend again this makes me so happy (laughs) no for sure there's definitely an undercurrent to that in that that moment in, in that sequence and funnily enough, you mentioned that uh, another big thing I did with my nephews was I, when I saw Ready Player One, I knew they were going to lose their minds for it. They are, you know, they're the perfect age, you know, to watch this. They, over the years, I've shown them so many of the movies referenced in there. Like I took them to see Back to the Future trilogy, oh. big screen. We've seen Ghostbusters. We've seen like all this stuff that I knew that they were going to pick up on. Um, but like I was sitting there going, like, but I know they haven't seen The Shining. The youngest ones kind doesn't handle uh, horror very well. Um, he says he does, but then I always get the call after we watch something scary from his dad going, "Yeah, so he had nightmares." And can you stop doing John <laughs> those movies? <laughs> um, uh, like I showed him The Sixth Sense, and apparently, uh, and they really both loved it. But uh, apparently, Max, the younger one, like had a dream about the the boy with the bloody head, and that was the the. Yep. The kid ghost that he's like, hey, you want to see where my, you know, where my dad keeps his gun? He that turns one, around. That is my hair standing on its end with you just talking about that. That one messes me up every time I watch that damn movie. <laughs> it's yeah, it's crazy. So so I I knew that that uh I, I knew that if I asked for permission, I might get a no. But I also knew that I really wanted to see 
uh, take them to see Ready Player One, and they have to see The Shining in order to fully get it. Um, so I, I essentially went rogue, and luckily for me, the parents were fine. But uh, I, I, when I had them for our movie day, I said, we're going to go see this new movie by the guy that did Jurassic Park and Jaws and all the stuff that we've watched. Um, and it's really cool. You're going to like it. It's you know kind of about video games, but not. And I said, but there is... You know, before we do that, I want to show you this scary movie. And they said, why? I'm like, you, you know, I'll tell you, you know, later. I'll tell you after we, we have our movie day. And, uh, uh, and I wasn't quite sure how they were going to take it because um, it is a little slow. Um, it is, uh, it's not the kind of movie that, that we watch a lot. Um, uh, you know, there's, you know, of course, there's nudity in it. And there's the N word is spoken, you know, quite liberally in the bathroom scene. And. You know, and I knew that there was going to be some times where we had to talk about it, but like, you know, their reaction instantly was like, oh, that guy's a bad guy because he said the N word, you know, that, that means he's racist. And I'm like, yeah, that's like good. I don't have to explain that part. And, you know, and they're also not, not uh, at that age, they weren't in that time of uh, uh, where they, they were like super in the oogling, you know, uh, uh, girls and stuff. So they self censored themselves whenever there's nudity. There was the, you know, hands over the eyes. They were embarrassed, that kind of thing. So that's adorable. So, so that that was fine, and they handled it well. And they really, they really like surprisingly were super into the movie. And I'm like, okay, that's good. You really liked it. And then when we saw, it was like maybe an hour in between finishing that. I'm like, okay, we got to go to the movie theater and watch Ready Player One. And we were in the theater, and they get to the sequence when they're trying to find the key, and they're seeing like all the posters go around. You know the stuff, and and like then they tap me on the. Or I remember Rocco tapping me on the shoulder, going, "Hey, look, the sh-, you know, and whispering like the shinings over there." I said, "Yeah," and then he, you know, in the movie, he picks it, and suddenly the music starts, and like Rocco like turned to me, and he had the biggest like smile and recognition. His eyes were wide. He's like, "Ah, ah," like I know this, and like and as you know, as they were going in, the you know, the one character goes into room two thirty seven. And he was like, no, 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 don't go in there. Like, you know, he had that thing. And so he was in on the joke. Um, and that, so uh, I'm sorry that I'm talking only about my relationship with my nephews on this. But No, dude, that- I love it. I love it. You're, you're, you're tapping in. I run a show called Creating Geeks with my wife. It's one of the other shows I do. And that's what the whole show is about. It's about yeah. grabbing stuff from our childhood and talking about if it's okay to do with our kids. And I you're you're hitting on all the reasons why ready player one i loved so much is is because you're seeing it with the perfect audience that's the audience the movie's made for it it, it, yeah it's made for us that have seen all that stuff but we basically wrote that movie right you know um for for a kid to see it it's like oh man my uncle or my dad has shown me all this stuff and now i get to see a greatest hits reel of it all play i can't wait you know it's it's references that a young kid can immediately get and i i loved that about it well, and there's something special also about feeling like you're you're in in on the joke, or you're a, you're in you're a collaborator with the movie, and and that's what I saw in Rocco's eyes whenever he, like when the music, the Shining score, the iconic theme, you know, kicked up, and then suddenly they were in front of the Overlook, and he was and he was more into that sequence than in like almost anything I can remember showing him. You know, it's like because he felt like you know this was made for him. And, uh, and yeah, I don't know that, that, that was a very, very special, uh, thing, but I, I, I do get a lot of like some of the biggest pleasure in, in my adult life has come from showing these kids, uh, movies and, and, you know, here, I don't know if I've been more proud of anything than when, 
you know, we watched Tron and Tron Legacy and they were super into it. And then the next time I saw them, they said, we won't all, we want to watch Tron again. And I'm like, oh, uh, the newer one? like, no, no, the, the, the original one. And I'm like, oh, yeah, all right. You guys are doing something right. Yeah, <laughs> you're on the right track. Oh, that's awesome. So, you, you know, we 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 segued into Ready Player One and and uh, and AI and talking about Spielberg and, you know, <laughs> this is like a match made in heaven, man. I, I feel like I'm talking to someone I've known forever, which is, which is awesome because, you know, this is the point where I get to gush and be a little starstruck and say that you're my favorite internet film critic. And I mean that. Um, okay. And, you know, it's weird to say that with someone that I've had just such like a friendly conversation with, but um, th- this really is uh, an honor to have you on here. And, you know, it, it, it's the name Quint. I think that caught me in the pictures when you were originally on ain't it cool, you know, the little, drawing of your character you know being quint from the movie but you know we 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 share a mutual we share a mutual favorite film you know yeah yeah and of course uh orca yes exactly (laughs) (laughs) and uh you know um you know my 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 history with with you I've, i've said this in the emails before when we were talking but you know um I won a contest. It's like the only contest I've ever won from writing in for anything. It's one of those email contests. I won tickets to see uh, the King of Kong at the Brattle Theater in Boston nice. from you. So, so that's why I was like, oh man, I still have that guy's email address, even though you, you know, had it posted on your Twitter and everything. But I, you know, that was a fantastic movie. Um, what was your first, uh, your first kind of um, initiation into that film? Were you like uh, aware of its? production and everything or is it something that kind of just fell on from the job for king of kong yeah uh let's see i think i saw that at sundance it it either played sundance or south by when i saw it the first time i'm I'm trying to remember because there was two there was a competing documentary that was almost about the same thing yep uh it, um, and I saw one of those at Sunday. I think I saw the other one because I think uh, King of Kong maybe played Slam Dance, and and uh, the other one that nobody remembers was the Big Sundance movie. Um, but either way, I I know I saw it at a film festival and I loved it. And um, I saw it early enough that they put my quote on the poster, which I you know that. a few times over the over the years. But uh, uh, but yeah, no, I remember being very pleased with that one in particular uh, because it's just an amazing underdog story. And yeah, I mean that that movie, <clears throat> there's <laughs> it it has one of the best villains in, in like the history of of all film, and it's a documentary. Like, there's nobody that that I like to hate more than Billy Mitchell. Oh yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and he uh, he's such a pompous, you know, entertaining. You know, but obviously talented guy. He talented in this one little aspect, uh, and he reminded me so much of like you know the people in my life that had been, um, you know, kind of skeezy and you know snake oil salesman kind of people. Uh, but I remember just kind of like seeing this uh, uh, David versus Goliath, you know, story that's there, you know, all around these arcade games that I grew up playing. It's kind of it, it, it's such a great you know doc, and it's such a easy to watch thing um but yeah no i remember seeing it i remember loving it and then they reached out after after i saw it at, at one of those festivals and reviewed it and you know when it came time to push it and screen it around the country they they asked if i would you know help run you know some ticket giveaways and get any cool readers in uh and you know i'm more than happy to to help spread the love of you know something that i really enjoyed 
Yeah, you know, it was crazy seeing it in the theater because outside of your your review and the um, trailer that you guys ran for it, I'd never really heard of it. But, you know, then I started reading into it and I'm like, oh, I got to see this movie. So sitting there seeing it and then it's kind of like you talk about with Ready Player One where you're watching it and you're like, wait a minute, like I'm more. I know more about what's going on here and there's more to this. Like, I feel like I'm, I'm contributing because fun spot where they have their great big donkey Kong showdown in the movie. And where Mm -hmm. a lot of the documentary takes place is my childhood arcade. Like we, we spent every summer up in the white mountains in New Hampshire. And this was just, you know, when in the eighties and nineties, when I was a kid, this was just any other regular old arcade. The family just had so much real estate that they kept all the games and they kept them going. And now they're the uh, American video game arcade museum. And the plate, I don't know if you've ever actually been there before, but that place is worth a trip. No, that sounds awesome. And uh, yeah, I, you know, it's, and Halloween in Salem just went by. I know that you were up, up this way a couple times recently. You went and visited Stephen King's house. Remember guy gave you a, was trying to get you into um that Kirk Hammett exhibit. That's right. The, yeah, yeah, that that was a really cool thing. Yeah, no, I, I only I I uh I only was in Salem for a short period of time. I was there on the set visit. Uh, it was actually one of the last few things I did for Any Cool because I think that was the yep. You know that was r- the September or whatever. That was a few weeks before Fantastic Fest, and that's when all the the shit went down with uh, uh, with Harry Knowles, the my boss, getting me tooed and you know, yep, looking into all that stuff and deciding I, I couldn't stay with the site anymore. Um, but uh, and funnily enough, the set that I went to visit is a movie that still hasn't come out and might never come out because it was the New Mutants. <laughs> and uh, no shit. Yeah, so they were shooting in Boston, and I'd never been... I'd been around the area, but I never spent much time there. But I knew that if I was going out to visit that set, I, I had to make the pilgrimage up to Bangor and, and uh, you know, see Stephen King's house and do all that stuff. And, of course, Salem's on the way. So so I was only in Salem for just a little bit. You know, I had uh, I had breakfast at a, at a place that was recommended to me by, of all people, Damien Eccles of the West Memphis Three. Fame. Oh, no. Wow. Um, what, what was the he, place you went? Oh, Jesus! Like the Red Barn or something. Red's. Red, Red Sandwich Shop. Red Sandwich Shop. There you go. And he said that it had some of the best breakfast, and he he wasn't kidding. And what was amazing is is I went to eat there, and and there was a there were like three people or a table of like these two guys dressed as uh, witches, uh, eating too in like full like. Wicked Witch of the the West, you know, green face paint and stuff like that. <laughs> it was it was crazy. Um, but yeah, no, uh, I only had that would a be Salem for you. Yep, I I did the uh, the museum or the uh, yeah the witch museum tour and and saw the the little not quite animatronic, <laughs> you know, mannequin yep. displays and and yep. uh, uh, you know I had to do that and then I drove the four hours up to up to Maine and paid however much on your, all the ridiculous turnpikes you guys have up there and <laughs> to get up there. And Oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, that was a fun trip, but yeah, I only got to, to see the, the Hammett exhibit, like from the out, outside, like I, I kind of poked my head in and they were just like, yeah, it's going to be like 25 bucks. And I'm like, nah, I can't, <laughs> I can't do it. I'm only going to, I only have like half an hour before I have to <laughs> get the road. I don't want to, 
want to spend that money and, and not actually get to spend time in here. It was it was pretty damn cool. Um, oh, I bet. But yeah. Have you played Have you played Fallout Four? Oh yeah. So you can walk to the um, the Witch Museum. Oh, I know. There's there's a really mean death claw in there. Yes, there is. <laughs> and um, Lynn Woods, um, where I see people playing the game all the time, and Lynn Woods, I can basically see from my house, <laughs> which oh, is pretty cool. And it's pretty damn. Um, correct that that stone tower up there has been a many a set for um independent films my brother and i have made over the years Uh, i see there's something to to that stuff i I was a big fallout 3 fan that was like the game that got me into rpgs and i remember i did a uh some sort of press visit to dc um this is when Obama was still in the White House. So this, I, it was for Lone Survivor. It was the Peter Berg movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so they they had a thing where we met the the actual guy that Mark Wahlberg played and had dinner with him and Peter Berg and and they put us up at the hotel that Obama stayed in when he was like he you there's that transition period or whatever where he still has to be in Washington but he can't move into the White House. And so we were like literally across the street from the White House and and I remember like. Like uh, there were two or three times where where I had some free time, two or three days while I was there, and and just walking down to the mall and walking walking around in the memorials and stuff, and and I I knew it already by heart because I played so much Fallout Three, so I'm like I knew where I was <laughs> depending on which museum I was nearby, or and I, oh, I can already no. go like oh look you know I know if I'm over here then the Jefferson Memorial has got to be this way, which is uh, a really uh, screwed up way to <laughs> learn your historical geography i'm visualizing this like the the uh, movie deja vu where where you've got like one eye is seeing the game and the other eye is seeing reality i I may or may not have uh, been been uh, walking around with the fallout 3 score and and all the old music on my ipod as i was uh, going around i I might yeah (laughs) some cole porter and (laughs) all that stuff playing and like i had my own uh, pit boy yeah that's amazing <laughs> so um m- more ways where art imitates life um so lynn where i live which is right next to salem and in that same woods has a has a pirate um treasure hidden in it supposedly and uh mm-hmm. um you know when you're a little kid and you hear that story there's a place called dungeon rock and they do a pirate day every year and a guy in a pirate costume takes you on tour of it and the way it went down is a guy owned the land and he believed that a pirate, a local legend pirate, had buried his treasure there. And mm-hmm. so he was digging a tunnel trying to find it. So you can go and walk around in this tunnel. And his son, when the guy died, donated the land to the city. And that's why we have this giant woods that the no one can touch. But oh, nice. I heard this story for the first time. And think about like a four-year-old, five-year-old kid who's obsessed with the movie Goonies. And hearing yeah. that there's a pirate treasure in our, so that was like, you know, the boy scouts, like every couple of years would like dredge it and like go in there and like try to find it. And it's like, I, I love, I love how, you know, the, this like, you know, generation that, that we're, you know, the, the older folk in right now, um, grew up with all that stuff where it's just like, you know, your, your life can be so swayed by these geeky things. It's awesome. Yeah, no, I mean, it, there's also, you, you have not only your love of, you know, film, yeah, I grew up in a movie nerd too, but there's also that childhood sense of adventure that, like, all, every generation can 
uh, relate to, whether it's you know my grandparents and you know doing playing cowboys and Indians, right. and you know and being obsessed with that kind of thing. Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area of California. I didn't. I moved to Austin when I was thirteen, uh, but when I was in the Bay Area, there was a place called the Winchester Mystery House, and um, yeah. I'm not sure if you know this. And that was a place I was obsessed with because you know I love ghost stories and I love Stephen King and I love you know scary movies and you have this you know local place. It's a real place. It's really messed up. And if people don't know the history of it. Uh, there was a really crappy uh, Helen Mirren movie that was kind of made about it recently. Yes, uh, there was. Uh, called Winchester, but it's uh, it's it's uh, what happened was there was like this mansion that was owned by uh, the the husband uh, and wife that like uh, owned Winchester guns. You know, the ones that tamed the West, the Winchester rifles. And uh, uh, when the husband passed, the wife kind of went crazy and believed all the ghosts of people killed by her husband's guns were uh, tormenting her. And the only way that uh, she could stop them was to keep adding on addition, different additions to her house. And she wanted to confuse the ghosts. So she, she built like stairways to, uh, you know, to, you know, blank walls and she built corridors that went nowhere and trap doors. And it's like this. So it's now a tourist attraction where you can go around and, uh, you know, they. I remember the the she she looked. She was an adult to me when I was a kid taking this tour, but she was, must have been all of you know seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years old. But I remember she was. She said something about how there was always uh, new things being discovered in the house that they didn't know, and new trap doors and new you know things that people never saw and hidden hidden stairways and stuff like that. And so, like, I remember being like eight or nine years old taking this tour and. And touching everything because I wanted to be the one that discovered the next thing. I, you know, any bump, any board that was a little bit raised from the other ones, I tested and pressed and pulled on and tried to figure out. You know, was the you know was a new secret passage that nobody ever discovered before. You know, that would be awesome. Oh man, I, I've always wanted to visit there. Uh, it, it's funny that you bring that up because um, the the people i used for my ad read the geeks with shields guys who i'm really good buddies with did an episode for their bootober this year on the winchester mystery house yeah so i'll just plug them for a second there Let's because <laughs> no, no no but um no so that's awesome so so you moved from the bay area to austin and so you've been in austin pretty much since yeah, oh yeah no i've uh, i've lived in austin since i was 12 years old it was 93 when i moved i turned 13 here yeah so I've been I've been in Austin long enough to uh, to actually earn the ability to go around saying, "Well, this is nothing like it used to be." It changed so much. It's so funny. I I have so many friends that moved here in like 2012 and 2013, going, "Man, I don't recognize the city anymore." I'm just like, you know, like please, <laughs> like tell try, me. About try it. try 93. <laughs> yeah, I came out the summer of Jurassic Park, yo. Oh man, Jurassic Park, the movie that my uncle scared me too much about how real and horrifying it was. So the day my mother picked me up from school to take me to see it, I freaked out and said I didn't want to see it. And then because uh, it was a Spielberg movie, I had to wait like five years for it to come out on VHS. All right. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, no, no. I have very vivid memories of watching watching that big. I mean, I was about the best target age for that movie as, as you could possibly be. Uh, you know, yep. I was a 12, 
twelve year old twelve year old boy, and it was a Spielberg summer blockbuster about dinosaurs. So that that wasn't definitely my shit. It was. Uh, oh, it I was, wanted to see it so bad, and my damn uncle scared me. Well, I mean, that's kind of his job. I can speak as as being the uncle trying to scare the shit out of his nephews. You but know, it's I, funny because this is coming from the kid that like watched The Shining when he was five and Jaws when he was uh, six. You know, yeah. so I I don't know what I was so scared about. <laughs> but uh. <laughs> Interesting thing, like I, I, I don't. My memory's kind of crappy, but like I, uh, you know how you talk to people sometimes, and they're like, "Yep, I." When I was six years old, my uncle's best friend Seymour and and his wife Helen, and like all this, like they'll remember all the shit. Like that's not me, but I vividly remember being in that theater in '93, uh, and I rem- I not only remember that, I remember the circumstances around it. I remember. Uh, my grandparents hardly ever went to actually take take me to see movies, like w- like as a group. They always would drop me off, though. They drop me off and pick me up. You know, this is back in the almost Stranger Things days, where you know nobody had a cell phone, and and uh, you know people who were supposed to look after young kids were totally fine with them going out, you know, in the public, wandering alone for a whole day. Yeah. Um, and uh, but they would always take me to to a movie theater or the mall theater or whatever. And this was the Century Cinemas, which were kind of the bigger cinemas. They always reminded me, if you remember that thing in uh, Naked Gun, the joke when when uh, Frank Drebin's like, you know, uh, talking about after meeting Priscilla Presley, how everything he sees reminds reminds him of her. And like, he, there's that shot of those domes with the two tops, so they look like big giant boobs. <laughs> it, it, that was the that was the Century Cinemas. They were these giant dome theaters, so they had these big giant curved screens. And um, uh, I remember n- not only being dropped off there, but I remember the night before seeing on the news, uh, watching with my grandma, and she was uh, 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 we we were just sitting there watching the news, and there was a big story about how Jurassic Park is selling all these tickets and showing both like. Uh, news footage of these lines around blocks and how there's hour waits and everything's being sold out and and all this and this was before the time when you bought tickets in advance you like you yep. didn't there was fandango there was no no you know buying your ticket before and uh i knew i really wanted to see it and she took me to the first show on saturday morning and uh they and i went there expecting like oh there's gonna be all this crazy line or whatever and i i like we get there and there's a bunch of cars in the parking lot but there's no people like there's no line i walk right up to the ticket booth and i remember her she waited for me to make sure that i they didn't sell hadn't sold out and you know they sold me a ticket and and i waved waved her on and i walked in and there was a little bit of a line at concession stand um and i remember very vividly buying a coke and some uh red vines and uh and uh going into the theater and kind of getting a, a crappy seat a little bit too far to the left uh off to the left but then they made it and, and it was about two-thirds full and so i'm like oh there's where all the people are and, and then they made an announcement saying that they had sold out the screening so could everybody you know fill in all the empty seats and so that meant you know leaving the empty seats on the side so everybody moved towards the middle and i somehow ended up dead center uh, of the movie and when the movie started there was a digital it was like one of the first digital audio movies and it yep. had digital surround sound movies and i remember the the uh logo for that which was this big like gold cd that was like hit the screen and then exploded into a million bits and those bits like you know surround sounded all around you and uh and it sounded like the loudest movie i'd ever seen i was 
drawn in the first time I jumped. The audience was screaming. They were laughing. It was like, I, I remember the taste of the red vines and the Coke mixing together. Like, I remember everything. That was a formative movie experience for me watching that at 12. Um, and I loved it so much that I, that was the summer of Jurassic Park for me. I bought the audio uh, book, Michael Crichton's audio book, read by John Hurd. Uh, and listen to that over and over again. I bought John Williams' soundtrack on CD. I played the pinball machine. I saw the movie, I think, seven or eight times on its first run. And then I saw it a couple more times when we hit the dollar theaters. And um, yeah, no, like I, I was so obsessed with it. I bought all the trading cards, I bought the making of books. Like I was obsessed with that movie. It, it's just it's such a good one. I, I finally got to see it in theaters. When I was older, there, there's a local theater around here called the Coolidge Corner that, yeah. um, you know, is a, you know, nonprofit. You know, they do like the, you know, sci-fi movie marathons and everything and the midnight movies. And it's where actually I got to see um, the uh, Indiana Jones um, remake, the Raiders remake come around. Oh, yeah, yeah you, I, I can imagine you've seen that probably on several occasions. But that, that well, was... Yeah. I was there when they when it screened for the first time anywhere they because they brought it. Uh, Eli Roth yep. got a hold of a copy of it and he took it to Buttonamathon, which was in right. Cool's four hour film festival, uh, and and uh, that's where Harry saw it and Harry was a big fan of it and like wrote about it extensively. And I my understanding is that because Spielberg was a big uh, and a cool reader, you know, it still blows my mind to, to this day. But uh, he he read the site a lot and. He heard about the Raiders remake there, and I know that right after, like we all started talking about it, um, he invited those guys over to Amblin, and they got to meet him, and and he watched it. And, and if people don't know what we're talking about, they, there's this these kids that did a, a shot for shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark, but they started shooting it when they were what, like twelve? Yeah, and then, and then they finished it when they were eighteen. <laughs> yeah, they they started. It took them years, and this is you know. Like the first like couple of years of them doing it, it wasn't available anywhere. It wasn't on VHS. It wasn't. They could only do it either from memory or from just going to the theater. And they replicated it, shot for shot, line for line. You know, and like the guy used his like dog as the Nazi monkey. You know that kind of thing. And they like tied a a string around its paw so it did the the Heil Hitler thing that it, that they do in the movie. And like it it's it's legitimately one of the most amazing things. Things, uh, that you can see because it's all about the love of this one film and what's uh, also incredible about it is because they shot it over such a long period of time in one scene you know the guy playing the kid playing indie will be 12 years old and they'll do a cutaway to something and then they'll cut back for the next line and he's suddenly 17 and he's like got five o'clock shadow and his voice is deep but he's you know doing the next part of the thing and you it's know, cause hilarious because the girl playing marion ages the same amount too so she it, it's it's just completely bonkers from scene yeah. to scene and like they you know i, I asked them because they were all there they came for the showing because what they were allowed to do is i guess george lucas would not allow them to make money off of it but yeah. Spielberg allowed them to show it as long as they came around with a print of Raiders and charged people to see that. So as yeah. long as like Amblin got a cut, it's so they were able to come and they brought the letter from Spielberg and like showed it to everybody. And, you know, and I asked them, I said, you know, so, you know, the movie, you know, is it really is a shot for shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he goes, it's exactly 10 minutes and 11 seconds shorter. 
And I go, why? And they go, because the plane fell through at the last minute and we couldn't do the plane fight. Yep. And then, then the, <laughs> they got it, didn't they? They, they, got, they did like a crowdfunding thing and they ended up yep. uh, shooting. You yep. know, so you have these, you know, suddenly this 10 minute section of the movie where all these 12 year old kids are now, you know, in their 30s, you know, recreating this plane fight. And I yeah. love they, they did every stunt. They did every car chase. They did the, I'm the submarine like that. That was the crazy shit. I remember when I watched it, like the first time I'm like, they actually, uh, they, you know, there's a scene when Indiana Jones is crawling up, climbing up the side of a submarine and they like, yeah. went, it's where a submarine was docked and they found it and they actually threw it. Like the kid jumped in the water and then swam over the sub for the shot and started climbing up the side of it. It's yeah. so unbelievable. And so I got to see that. And then, couple of years later got to see jurassic park and this yeah. was you know a few years before it came out in 3d so it's like an original you know pristine print of it and it like it just has to be seen in a theater there's just something about spielberg films man <laughs> yeah they definitely they play different you know i mean hell they play different and uh they're i grew up watching watch jaws is my favorite movie I grew up watching it in a kind of the most screwed up way that you could watch what would become your favorite movie because what my mom used to do, and I'm sure a lot of moms, you know, in my from my generation kids did, is she would record movies off of HBO. So she would, yep. like, we would watch, something would, would play and she would record them. So I had all these tapes that had two or three movies on them, depending how long the tape was. You and me both. And, and uh, I remember the Jaws tape, it was Jaws and Superman the movie, and both yeah. are... And um, I have a story about Superman the movie, too, which I'll get to in a second. But uh, uh, both of them were long, and I think that she recorded over a movie that was before Jaws. And so Superman the movie ran over the first, like, ten minutes of Jaws. So for most of the, the, uh, most of the uh, time that I saw the movie from, like, probably ages three, four, five to seven or eight or nine, where I was super obsessed with it... Uh, the movie didn't really start for me until um, uh, until well into the the first act. So uh, I I think the scene the scene where it started it was a, uh, around the time that the the Kintner boy attack was happening. Was oh yes. Um, and uh, and then I remember watching it again. You know, you know, we re-recorded it on something else, and I had. I had the full version, and then I remember seeing it uh, in uh, widescreen uh, on a widescreen VHS or a laser disc transfer or something that I saw it on, and it blowing my mind that there was pieces of the movie that I'd never seen because they were all cut off or pan and scan, and uh, you know then you see it big for the first time and it's a whole different experience. It's it's uh, you know I don't know it's it fascinating that era of, of growing up as a movie geek is quite the opposite of what you know people today have you know there's there's so you can have anything in its most pristine version um you know at your fingertips anything you want you can find even the most obscure stuff you can find rift to youtube or you know something our uh, our copy of et i mean my, that was my father it was all you know um tapes on extended play so there was usually three movies on every tape and yep. sometimes they were recorded off of you know channel 38's afternoon thing so they were super long and also edited for time and content <laughs> so yep. we had the um tv edit of caddyshack so with with hey everyone we're all gonna take a shower 
I remember Repo Man had one of the best TV TV edits. I, I remember watching that as a teenager. The, yeah. it, it was very creative. It's kind of like what the Coens do now with their with their TV edit stuff. That's if if you uh, remember that got a lot of publicity uh, for like the Big Lebowski. Uh, what they did is is they uh, actually had everybody record the TV stuff and they wrote the dialogue, the new like words. So it wasn't just you know fork this and you know whatever and so like the the famous example is um is uh uh walter from big lebowski he has that whole you know this is what happens you know like uh what was he say it's you know when a stranger fucks you in the ass or something yep. was it his thing is like this is what happened you see what happens larry you see what happens larry and that and but the re-recorded line was when you find a stranger in the alps <laughs> <laughs> when i you always find a stranger in the alps they did that with snakes on a plane, and I I always loved that. Um, Samuel L. Jackson, I've had it with these monkey fighting snakes on this Monday to Friday plane, and <laughs> that one just blew my mind when I saw that the first time. Yeah. I'm like, you guys are having way too much fun. Too much fun. So you said you had a Superman story. I, well, I do. Like, uh, and this is uh, I'll, I'll I'll kind of uh, coach it and or uh, I'll wrap it up in, in my name-dropping story of the time that I uh, got to meet Dick Donner. Um, but what I told him is uh, the, the, a buddy of mine named Jeff Boucher ran a, a film festival in L.A. called the Hero Complex Festival. And he would consistently bring in amazing... Like, yeah, James Cameron came, came in and showed, uh, I think it was Aliens or The Abyss. He showed one of his films. You know, James Cameron's there to have a conversation afterwards, and like Warren Beatty showed Dick Tracy, and you know they 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 would do all this, these crazy Ridley Scott showed Alien, and and did, I think he showed Alien and Blade Runner together, and like they did all these crazy things, and he would sometimes invite me back, you know, backstage to meet the people, and um, so at that time I remember Dick Donner was there showing the Donner cut of Superman in uh, Superman Two. I guess Superman 2 is the Donner cut and then the, the, the regular Superman. And, um, and I, I went up to him and uh, I told him uh, a story. And that story is what my mom told me is that my, uh, my, my mom and dad, their very first uh, date was to see Superman in 78. And, uh, uh, you know, and then, you know, they saw Superman, the movie was their first date. They, you know, obviously, you know, fell for each other and, you know, Couple year, a few years later, they had me. They got married, and they had me, and then you know the rest is history. So I went up to Dick Donner and I said, "said Hey, I just wanted to thank you because if uh, you screwed up that movie, I might not be here." <laughs> you know, <laughs> that, that was my parents' first date, and if they didn't like the movie, maybe that uh, you know, I that I wouldn't have happened. And and Dick Donner clapped me on the the shoulder and said, "Son." So he kind of now Richard Donner claims me as uh, as one of his children, and I'm going to take that and, and hold him to it. So, so yeah, your your version of Back to the Future is far stranger. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you you go back in time and inexplicably ruin Superman and then cease to exist. You exist for sure. I mean, I don't know if there's still a chance that I get lucky with young Leah Thompson. Maybe it's all worth it. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's wild. Yeah, you know, going back to seeing movies you know, in a different way than you saw them recorded. I didn't realize how um, uh, the opening scenes of Jaws, 
you know, mm-hmm. are, you know, of, of a young woman skinny dipping. Right. And, you know, you're a young kid and you see that and, you know, it's like, okay, cool. This is interesting. It's a great, maybe you can see something, but you know, you get a little older and you go, Oh, cool. You know, they, they filmed that scene, you know, so well that like, you know, that she's skinny dipping, but it's like a silhouette. But then I saw it on Blu-ray. No, yep. no, 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 no. There was, there was nothing artistic about that, that at all. That was just full on. Yeah. There's a naked girl swimming here. <laughs> and I was like, Oh damn. All right. You can you can see everything on the you, you, I, that struck me the first time I saw it at 35 when I saw saw the movie on 35 and on non faded print so it must have been uh, no it was a uh, uh, Greg Nicotero found a uh, 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 one of the rare IB Tech prints of Jaws that's where I noticed oh. it and so uh, this is pre Blu-ray and and all that but uh, it's just like yep that's uh, yeah Chrissy's very naked and it's very 70s so she's got uh, uh, <laughs> she's got a you know. Yeah, I can see her pubic hair, and I never would have uh, imagined right. that. And, right. You know, you know, obsessing over over uh, Jaws and just seeing the, you know, like you said, the silhouette and going, "Yep, that that girl's obviously meant to be naked." That's wild. Yeah, and you know, our copy of ET, you know, that's a very dark, very intentionally lit and filmed movie. You know, the quintessential Spielberg look everywhere, right? But because we had, you know, a recorded off of HBO on bad extended play vhs i the first time i saw a clean cut of that i'm like looking around and going there's so much stuff in these shots <laughs> you know did your uh, did your parents try to theme the the movies or did they just record whatever happened they happened to have space for and what was on um it depended like you know when, when my dad started realizing that my brother and i you know were were into this stuff you know, he'd, you know, okay, so Labyrinth and Dark Crystal would go on a tape with episodes of um, of uh, Fraggle Rock, you know, and stuff oh. like that. And, you know, he'd throw, like, The Last Starfighter and uh, Flight of the Navigator on the same tape together, you know, and stuff like that. But yeah. um, I think before it was just he'd record, you know, whatever the new movie HBO had out that week was just the next one he'd put on there. Yep. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I don't know. I think I learned my love of... of uh... Uh, I think about it all the time. Like, what what would make a you know good double feature, you know? And uh, I think a lot of that stems from you know probably my parents remembering actually going to see double features, you know, and programs, you know, stuff that was uh, programming that was, you know, kind of similar to each other, and, and them recording, you know, their their tapes that way, and me watching them that way. Like, I remember one of my tapes was, the thing and the fly were on one oh, tape. I had. Damn. I had a tape that was uh, Legend, Labyrinth, and Neverending Story. We're all the three on there. Yes. And jeez, uh, uh, there was there's two or three more where it was just like that, you know, then like Superman and Jaws, which you know don't really have a connection other than being giant, you know, tentpole seventies, you know, classic movies. Yeah. Yeah, it's. It- I, I, I would love to, like, set up double features for people, especially if it's movies that they've never seen, right? You know, like, like all of those. Finding someone that's never seen those movies, let alone see them back-to-back, it, it would just be awesome. Yeah, no, I've, I've, uh, I, I've put a lot of thought into that stuff. I think about that stuff a lot. And I, uh, um, like, I, I, I would love to screw with an audience. And, like, I would love to show an audience something that they don't know, like, what's coming, that they just know that they're there for a double feature of something and like uh and really and make them try to figure it out <clears throat> like i always thought it'd be really cool to to do a double feature of um 
uh, uh, Demons, the Lamberto Baba Demons. I'm sure you know that film. Uh, And double feature that with uh, Woody Allen's Purple Rose of Cairo. And people start picking out, you know, because that's all about, you know, movies. It's all, they're all like set in a movie theater, you know, format and stuff that happens in the movie impacts what's happening in, in real life. And, and, uh, you know, in the Purple Rose of Cairo in particular, it's, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, Jeff Bridges, no, Jeff Daniels steps, uh, steps off of the, uh, out of the screen and into the real world. And, you know, in, in Demons, you know, a movie about demons causes real demons to happen and, you know, and the an end of the world, you know, scenario to happen. And, and I'm like, oh, that would be really neat to, you know, kind of do whiplash double feature that it has the same themes. So yeah, absolutely. Some, some, me do that <laughs> have you um have you seen lake mungo no i haven't i've heard heard really good things about it though so that when you watch it if, if you if you if you remember me when you watch it let me know how great of a double feature it would make with searching the, oh, okay. it, I, I watched it i watched it and i'm the like junk, yeah i'm like this movie it it it, it like Mungo's awesome, and I think it was like Scott Wampler or one of those those guys mm-hmm. tweeted about recommending it, and I'm like, oh, let me find this movie because it sounds interesting. And as soon as I got over with it, all all that popped into my mind was searching, and I hadn't thought about searching, even though it was one mm-hmm. of my favorite movies the year it came out. And they would just be thematically so perfect, even though one's a horror movie and one is just a movie, you know, like Gone Baby Gone would make a good a double feature with one of those as well, but that's just so friggin' bleak. Yeah. Oof. Oh, that's, that's another good thing. Like, uh, yeah, I, uh, another good double feature ideas is showing people, uh, something like the mist. And I know that it, you know, nobody is, is allowed to like this movie and I don't like it, but I respect it, but something like the mist and, um, a Serbian film, you know, just, Oh, Damn. Where you like of just the darkest, bleakest, most fucked up endings, you know, that you could possibly imagine. Um, well, we we like, just we we just created caused an entire theater to cease to live. Oh like, yeah, they, yeah, they didn't nope. kill themselves; they just gave up. Well, and and nobody would forget. I I couldn't like let people see a Serbian film and not know what they were getting into. That's not one that you <laughs> that you try to surprise somebody with. Oh, that movie! Whoo. It's a rough one. I, I, I interviewed, funnily enough, I interviewed uh, uh, Robert Patrick for this movie he did um, uh, that showed at South by this year called Tone Deaf. And for whatever reason, the beginning of the interview is all about me having to explain the Serbian film because somebody made an offhand joke about, you know, having a bleak ending. I'm like, well, at least it's not like a Serbian film. And then everybody there was like, what's a Serbian film? And I'm like, I can't, you know, like, are you going to make me say, <laughs> say what goes on in that movie to you? And then as I was, you know, telling like Robert Patrick, he's like, they made a movie like that. I'd never do a movie like that. I'm just like, well, you're the T-1000. You can have the, have that choice, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I have that quote from T-1000. That's too bleak for me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, thanks. Pass. <laughs> I, I'm all set. <laughs> yeah. That one, that that's a rough one. I'm trying to think is that so yeah I mean god it, there there are way too many things we could talk about and I'm like a treasure trove you know you're you're uh you've met lots of people that I've always wanted to meet <laughs> um I've been but, very uh, lucky yeah you've been very uh, you know and like you said you know what what 
when did you start? Was was Ain't It Cool your first gig? Uh, I mean, technically, I assume, yeah. I mean, it's uh, the first stuff that I ever wrote was for my high school newspaper. Nice. Um, and I was I went to James Bowie High School here in Austin. Not David Bowie High School, James Bowie High School. Um, and they had a, a newspaper. I assume that the student newspaper is still the same. It's called the Lone Star Dispatch. And I was in my journalism 101 class as a freshman, so I must have been 14. And uh, it shared a, 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 a space with the newspaper and yearbook room. And I remember going over... Um, uh, to visit the newspaper people. And then uh, I was a huge fan of uh, George Carlin gro- uh, growing up and George Carlin was coming through town to do a stand-up special. So I asked them if, uh, if I went to this concert, the stand-up concert, could I write a review for it for the, for the, you know, the school newspaper? And they said, yeah, sure. Why not? You know, it's like, why don't you go? And so I went and, and you know, being 14 years old and you know, figuring like, oh, I'm a real reporter now. Like, I stayed afterwards and I tried to get an interview with George Carlin. Uh, and uh, uh, I met his manager, uh, a guy named Jerry Hamza, uh, came out. And, and I said, hey, hey, look at me. I'm a, I'm a young kid. I'm a freshman in high school. I want to interview George Carlin. He's like, nah, dude. <laughs> he's like, nah, you know, no, he's a little tired. He's gotten two shows and, you know, he had to do two shows tonight and, and uh, he gave he gave me his card though, and he's like he's like, uh, why don't you give me a call? I will, you know, I'll I'll talk to George and see if he wants to do like a phone interview with you. And I said, yeah, like that would be great. I'm like, it's just a high school newspaper. There's no pressure. And uh, and he said, yeah, that's why I think George might do it. And I'm oh, like, oh, that's really? awesome. And uh, and a couple weeks later, I was on the phone with George Carlin, and I did a big interview with him for my you know high school newspaper, which. Which is really funny because I was 14. Um, I, we hadn't even covered interviewing in journalism 101 yet. So I, before I interviewed like my classmates or whatever, I, I interviewed one of the most influential comedians of the you know, <laughs> uh, you know of the 1900s <laughs> and uh, you know of all time. And he uh, uh, and he was amazing and very patient and gave me a good a good interview and and. Uh, uh, you know, and I, I wrote about it and I was doing that kind of thing, but it was always through my, you know, I, I went and got into the newspaper program, you know, when I, you know, was, I think I couldn't get into the junior year. I think that was the youngest that they would allow people to do the, run the newspaper. And, uh, and I ended up running the entertainment section and I would be doing, uh, interviews with, uh, like I interviewed David Prowse when he came for a local convention, you know, the guy who played the body of Darth Vader and, yep. And uh, I interviewed Mike Judge for the high school newspaper. I interviewed a you know a few people, and and uh, Harry Knowles started Ain't It Cool in '96, I believe. And I think I met him in '96 or '97. I used to buy movie posters off of him. That's what he and his dad used to do. They would yep. sell movie memorabilia, and I bought I bought a one floor over the cuckoo's nest two sheet from him, uh, and a Friday the Thirteenth one sheet from him. And uh, I remember. That was the first time, and I'd always go over to their booth because I was a movie nerd, and they always had new movie stuff. And and um, but he didn't really notice me at all until uh, Quentin Tarantino ran a film festival here called the QT Fest, where he would bring his thirty-five and sixteen millimeter prints of like Grindhouse classics and and do those double features and stuff. And Harry noticed me there and noticed that I was the only one there for every movie, including the all-night 
um, uh, horror marathon and then the kitty matinee, you know, a few hours later. And so he, I was the only <laughs> one that he, that wasn't in his friend circle that that was actually doing that, you know, and going to all the movies. So, so um, you know, then he found out that I was doing these interviews and stuff. He's like, I started this website, and I'm like, I barely know what a website is, but yeah, I'll write for you. And and so I started writing, and uh, I graduated in '99, and and by that point, I was uh, a fixture on Ain't It Cool, and Ain't It Cool was was hugely popular and popular there were you know articles that were getting tens of millions of clicks you know the stuff like he leaked the x-men costumes the first time anybody saw the x-men costume yep that and and stuff like that and i remember having arguments at that point with my newspaper the newspaper teacher who was you know just this you know old texas you know woman you know that just very texas very this is how it goes and she's like telling me that i couldn't write my articles the way i was writing them because that's not how it's done. And I'm like, lady, I'm writing, like, for a, like I, I wrote an article that got, you know, 500,000 views, and you're telling me that this isn't the way it's done? I'm like, I'm, like, I'm living proof right now that this is how, how it's done. And so I was butting heads a lot with her, you know, at that point, and I was probably, you know, a little too smart-ass for my own good, but I was just like, I'm, like, everything you're telling me is wrong because I'm having success already doing this, you know, this way, and this is the way that I like to do it, so... Um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I probably should have paid a little bit more attention to, you know, writing in a non-bloggy style, but, you know, the good news for me is that, uh, you know, all those jobs are about as dead and obsolete as, as, uh, as, uh, you know, getting a full-time, uh, uh, online blogging job is now. So. Well, right, yeah, just, so it, 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 all, it all becomes something new, right? Like, you know, I, I, my brother got me into doing this because... Yeah. He, he's he's a local film critic in the Boston area, works for The Escapist, and he's like, my fans want me to do a podcast, you should come on. And yeah. he ended up, it ended up being like, he he recognized in the first few episodes we did, he's like, oh man, he goes, you know, Chris, you you got something going on here, name this thing, this, this is your shtick. And I'm like, why is it that I'm enjoying doing this so much? Because this is not in my comfort zone at all, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and w- what I went back and realized is my dad used to always say he wanted to be a DJ. He mm. wanted to be a radio DJ, like a talk radio DJ, you know, that would like talk about music and stuff in between them. Like, you know what is, is that it? Like, is it like that in the back of my head, it's like something that like my dad passed on to me and it's like, that's pretty cool. Um, and you know, you talked about, you know, just that, that George Carlin thing, you know, this is much more small potatoes, but Get, getting you know someone like you on which which i'm i'm still completely honored and really happy you said yes you know it, it's weird we have such a connection where you can just kind of go and say hey i do this thing you want to do it and like that thing with george carlin it's like you know no pressure it's just some guy you know sitting in his house in lynn that wants to talk to you i've had so many people that i never thought in a million years would would want to come on just be like yeah of course like the people the people that run the last blockbuster in the world I-, I do a blockbuster show and like i'm like oh my god you know there's the last one in the world now i gotta get them on my show they won't they're on like 60 minutes and you know fox news <laughs> and oh then and she's like dude she goes of course i'll be on your show and i'm like well how much time can you give me she goes i'll talk to you for three hours if you want she goes this is going to be a fun conversation she goes those yeah, other things are annoying and i'm like oh sweet yeah, well, I mean, there's there is some so much more pressure doing anything that's either in front of an audience or doing something that's 
you know is going to be broadcast and you you suddenly feel like you're out of your depth and and you know the podcast format is something that i was very slow um to looking at um and i very much wish that like uh towards the end of my time at ain't cool we'd been kicking around doing a podcast and i wish that we would have actually done that because you know at the height of that that site's you know reach and power and and uh you know, the chemistry of some of the people there at the time, it's like that would have been translated great, but we just kind of dragged our feet. And, uh, but now I love podcasting. It's, it's very much something that I'm, you know, I listen to all the time. I have, you know, so many, too many podcasts that I listen to now that, that it's, it's getting hard to, you yeah, know, it, it's addictive. Um, but, uh, you know, and it, I don't know, you just, you know, I, I've always been, way more comfortable having a conversation with somebody than trying to do something super rigid and structured. And, and that's what podcasting is all about. It's all about the conversation. You know, it's like Mark Marin successful, you know, because that's what he does is he, he knows how to, you know, have a conversation with somebody, you know, that's, you know, some of the stuff me and my uh, high school uh, uh, newspaper teacher were having arguments about, you know, because my writing was always conversational. It, yep. it wasn't, you know, it, it it, it, you know, I, I'm never going to be as insightful as Pauline Kale, you know, but, you know, when it comes to breaking down a movie, but what I can do is I can relate to, um, you know, to people and, and share my experience and, you know, my interpretation of a movie in that way. Um, and, and that's something that I think would translate very well to podcasting. And um, you, you mentioned uh, uh, Scott Wampler, but he and I are working on something that we're very close to that that uh, I think that sometime this month we're going to do our first test recording of it. And if it goes well, I think we're going to have something really fun, you know, oh, that's to awesome. enter in this, uh, this uh, space with. Um, when I left Ain't It Cool, there were so many people were asking me, are you going to start your own site? Are you going to, you know, who are you going to write for and work for? And, and uh, you know, and I was just like, I have no idea. You know, when I, when I left under those circumstances that there was no safety net, there was no, cool, just go take this other job, you know, that I have waiting for me. I just, I knew that I had to leave and I couldn't, couldn't stay, stay with the site. And I just, I left and let pieces fall as, as it may. But I looked into starting my own site and I'm just like, I just, I don't know how you start a new pop culture site in this, in this era. Like nobody, like, I don't think people read that stuff anymore. It's like, the, I haven't seen you know, I, that said, people read read very specific things, but I I don't see there being um, a hub like Ain't It Cool was back in the day, where it was a hub for everybody who loved movies to come. Right. It was like you know you you, you you it wasn't like you weren't reading Ain't It Cool at the end of the day. You like that was the news. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's there wasn't anything else. This is it. You know. I mean, so that was. Sl- Film is still is still like up there. I think slash films like right, 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 exactly for that now. But like they don't have the community that Ain't Cool did. You know, it's like uh, you know, Birth Movies Death is has some of my favorite you know film writing that's out there now, and, and I like their, that, their that's my lot. current favorite. I love those guys. But I don't. I mean, you know, then I can name you twenty other sites that tried and failed, and and it's like I just didn't have it in me to to try to to make Ain't Cool two um, and I, I definitely didn't have it in me to ask, you know, any of these other, cause I would have loved to have started something with, with Drew McQueenie and, and, uh, uh, and Steve Procopi and Jeremy Smith, you know, who are, you know, Moriarty, yep. uh, Capone and Mr. Beaks respectively. And, and, you know, I think that there's still 
are amazing writers and amazing film commentators, but it's like, you know, we've been at this for long enough where we can't, we can't let's say, let's do a startup. I couldn't get Drew to say, you know, hey, come and work for a couple of years for free again. You know, it's like, and <laughs> see if we can build something. And the only other option was to start something with somebody else's money. And like Birth Movies Death was able to get along uh, well because they had the smart film writers, but they also had the Alamo Draft House willing to financially back it, you know, until it found its audience. And, and it's, I don't know, like to, to me, to me, the movie blogging, thing is as like in terms of starting a new site it, it, it's just not I, I don't think that there's an appetite for it that that's a shrinking industry with social media nobody wants to read articles for news anymore they just want to see the news on shared on social media it's like yeah. that you could do all the research and have the investment and pay writers to do it but the you know to write a story about it but yeah everybody reads a headline on on uh, on twitter and that's you know, and that's how they get the news. They don't go to one spot anymore. At least right. in my experience, they don't. You almost you almost don't even have to do press anymore. You just get you you let an embargo drop enough to let people have one line reactions on Twitter, and then there's your ad campaign for your movie. It's why you know Dwayne Johnson you know negotiates his his social media presence into his contracts because they get so much more marketing buzz from you know The Rock making a, a two-paragraph Instagram post about being on the set of the Jungle Cruise or whatever than they do buying, you know, a, a, a $10, $10 million Super Bowl spot for it. You know, that's it's just, insane. That's just, that's just the way the, the stuff is. But, you know, podcasting, on the other hand, is a, a place that I think is growing and hasn't quite hit its its saturation point yet. Um, and uh, where the movie blogging, the pop culture blogging, I think absolutely has. And there's so many people... No, that are so good at what they do that are out there that are f having trouble finding work, you know, because there's the outlets are drying up and in that in that realm. Um, but I, you know, podcasting is very attractive to me, and and not because I think I'm I have an incredible podcasting voice. Anybody listening to this who's still stuck around, you know, can certainly attest to that. Um, but you know, we there are some you know some knowledge some knowledge stuff that I base that I have for some certain things and. And, you know, I think getting getting uh, together with somebody like like uh, Scott Wampler, who's, you know, a friend and he's got a great, you know, uh, personality. And I think getting us together to to bullshit about what I think we're going to be bullshitting about, you know, with some of the people I think we can get to join us for that is is to me is, is a very exciting thing. I'm sorry I'm being a little vague and cagey about it, but I no, 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 I'm, you're, you're piquing my interest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna pretend that that's the intention, and not because I'm I'm uh, shit scared. It's all gonna fall apart. And not gonna happen. <laughs> so, well, well, remember, remember your good friend Chris Chipman here when you need to advertise for it, and you want to come back on his little show. For sure. Wink, wink. Sure. No, and I, I mean that though. I'm uh, I have a feeling you and I could talk for hours, and that's that's the fun part about this. <laughs> oh, for sure. But um, I'm uh, I'm I'm gonna try to wrap. On, it, uh, where are you right now? You're in Austin. I'm in Austin. Yeah. So what's it like? Eleven for you? Uh, it is twelve thirteen in the okay. morning. Okay. So yeah, it's one fifteen in the morning. But um, I, I wanted to ask you uh, another question because again, I w I would love to have you back on if you ever had the time because this is this is a 
a dream come true for me because, you know, I, I, I like the world where it's someone close to me in age that I look up to that I've been following. I didn't realize until right now that, you know, you were only a couple years older than me in 99 when I was reading all your stuff on yeah. on Ain't It Cool. That was this wild. But no, I, who, remember, I remember there was hold before I'm going to interrupt you here. But no, I it's remember, OK. I remember, there was something that I, I wrote in the early 2000s, maybe where I talked about my age. And I think at that point it was definitely when I was like. I'm 20 years old or I'm 19 years old. And I mentioned, I mentioned it offhandedly. And I remember all the talk back was like, what the hell? Like Quint's only 19, 20. Like, why am I listening to anything he has to say? It's like, what the <laughs> hell? I'm just like, well, you didn't know that for the last couple of years. You've been reading me. It's like, and you certainly, <laughs> certainly believe it. It's, it's weird. The internet. And I remember being like introduced as one of the, the grandfathers of, of internet, like movie journalism. And I'm just like, and at that point I was like 33. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm in my early thirties. You know, it's, it's weird. It's this whole, you know, internet thing is, is, uh, is, is a, a weird time twister, you know, thing. So I'm sorry. didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, that's okay. Oh, what I was going to say is this, this is a silly interview question, but it, it piqued my interest when you started talking about other stuff. Who, who do you think you've, you've interviewed the most? Bruce Campbell like, there. Bruce Campbell. I, I interviewed him a lot because um, I, I remember I got him a couple of times just to talk about Evil Dead um, uh, stuff back, you know, back in the day. And then I was on the set of Bubba Hotep for almost two weeks and got to know him a little bit there and interviewed him multiple times for Bubba during the course of its of its run. Um, so there was a period of time where it was definitely Bruce Campbell it, for whatever reason. Um, John Favreau's up there. Um, I, I've interviewed him or, or been on his sets for everything he's made, post made. So yeah, I'm nice. Not sure, you know, made post made, but he, he made a movie called. He shot a movie called Made. And I own. I own a movie called Made. There you go. <laughs> I'm trying to not say made too much in the same sentence. Um, but I met. I met him when he was on the Fest circuit for that, and uh, and that was another thing where it happened. It's happened to me a few times in in my career where where uh somebody who i respected was just like oh he's like are you quint he's like i i know who you are like i you know and i was like well me and uh uh that was one of the first ones was, was favreau like i it, we we it, we we had like shirts made back in the day that had had uh like all the spies the any cool spies that had the, their spy names and mine was yep. quint um, we had shirts for like the local Austin stuff. And like, I had a shirt that had the, the, that caricature of, of, uh, the guy in the shark's mouth, you know, and it said Quint on it. And, uh, Favreau saw that and was just like, is that you? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, he goes, oh man, it's like, I read your stuff all the time. And yeah. ever since, ever since then, you know, we've, uh, we've kept up. So I, I've interviewed Favreau so much and I've interviewed Favreau so much. In fact, that I've interviewed him about shit he never made. So, like, we have a long, like, hour-long interview that we did about what he was going to do with John Carter of Mars when he was on to direct that before uh, he he uh, ended up jumping ship and doing Iron Man. So it's like, wow. that's definitely up there, for sure. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm getting word from my wife that my son just woke back up. So oh, that's, so no, no, that's okay. So, um. <laughs> The, that 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 that's a perfect way to end um i would love if you ever have time to have you back on i have a game that because it took me so long to start this episode tonight mm -hmm. i decided to hold it to if i ever have you on again but i made a card game called right quote wrong movie and okay. um i've been playing it with people i've been taking it to like local like 
game cafes to play. I'm thinking about kickstarting it. So I use it as like an icebreaker on the show. But, it, you know, it, it's played like Cards Against Humanity, but you use movie quotes and match them with the wrong movie and try oh, to movie? make it funny. Okay. So, yeah, no, like, I'm, I'm... Um, if someone asks if you're a god, you say yes, the passion of the Christ. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But, but, but I'll hold you yeah. on that. But, but I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll let you um, please plug something. Tell people about, about what you're doing currently, where they can find your stuff. Um, if they don't already know, I'm hoping they already know. But... <laughs> Sure. Well, I mean, it's it's not easy to to find me because I'm not in a centrally located place like my time at Any Cool. Or then after that, for a year, I was with uh, Rooster Teeth, um, and they had a a, a news uh, section called the No. Um, and it's easier to point like, oh, I'm always there. But now I'm freelance, so most of the stuff that I'm writing right now is is uh, on Sci-Fi Wire. I, I do a lot for Sci-Fi Wire. Um, but the best place to find me is just my Twitter. It's my name at Eric Vespi. And uh, definitely, you know, if you're interested in, in hearing about what I have coming up, I, I certainly plug all that stuff on my Twitter. And, and I'll for sure, you know, with, if this thing with uh, this podcast with Wampler takes off, then uh, uh, you'll, you'll be hearing about it a lot on my, my Twitter feed. Awesome, man. Well, well it, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Quint, Eric Vespi, um, for shooting the shit with Chippa. And um, I really, really, really appreciate this, man. No, thanks for having me.